MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, October 13th, 2021. Today, Jamie Raskin and Adam Schiff say criminal referrals will happen for those who defy subpoenas from the January 6th committee. Maine Justice files a response to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals on SB8, the Texas abortion ban. Pelosi says the House will have to lower their expectations on the budget reconciliation bill. And the governor of Texas is trying to ban vaccine mandates. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Hello. Hello, my friend. Hello to you. I am excited for this episode. Me too. I get to talk to Fiona Hill. She's the author of the new book, There Is Nothing For You Here. We all remember her. Oh, yes. From uh, the first impeachment. (laughs) The the fact that I have to say first impeachment. I know. It should be more embarrassing than me saying, you know, my second husband. But it, it, (laughs) for some reason in this, in the Republican circles, it's not. They're totally fine with it. And you never won a popular vote. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. Anyway. I get to talk to her today. It's a, it's a nice long interview. And I've just started a YouTube channel. Well, I've had a YouTube channel for a while, but I'm I'm reinvigorating it. And um, I'm going to start putting up interviews of people who will allow me to put the video of our interviews up. Great idea. So you can see the video of Dr. Hill and I talking. And then I think we already have up there the video of uh, Glenn Kirshner and I from yesterday and Terry Canefield, that interview. So you can see, Very you can nice. actually watch them, which means I have to brush my hair. <laughs> if I ever sit in on an interview, that means I have to wear, I don't even have to wear pants, but I do have to brush my hair. You don't know if I'm wearing pants. You can't tell. I may not be wearing pants right now. You don't know. Yeah. Samesies. This could be a no pants episode. Could be. In fact, that's what we'll call it. We'll call it the no pants episode. You know, I do have to wonder how many people were like Fiona Hill. I loved her music before they remembered who it was, know, even though it's right? Fiona Apple. Whatever. Shadow boxer, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I will tell you that I have been chosen to test, to beta test a new feature on Twitter. Oh, you know how you can retweet, comment, retweet, like or like hide. Right. They've added they've added a down vote so you can dislike someone's reply to your tweets. Now I want to go on and see if I have this ability. Yeah, so I feel very powerful today. I do not. I tell you it's been nice, you know, if I if I'll say something about, you know, cuz Adam Schiff was on Matto last night talking about Mueller and the Mueller report and some of his regrets and I I I just tweeted out what Adam Schiff said. I didn't I didn't add any <laughs> commentary I just tweeted out <laughs> and people are like oh well the report said no collusion and dirty and so i then i tweeted I was like hey you might want to read the Mueller report before you drop your two cents on the Mueller she wrote twitter feed just a thought and then i just get all these negative comments now i can now i can dislike actively dislike their comments i feel very powerful there you go so be nice to me on twitter today while i beta test this thing that's all i'm saying all right, that's it. We uh, we have so much news, though, that's happening right now. We figured that this would happen, Dana, because it's the end of a holiday weekend. Of course. So let's jump in. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, first off, tomorrow and Friday, Meadows, Patel, Bannon, and Scavino are scheduled to appear 
you know, to have give testimony before the January 6th Select Committee. And now that we're back from the holiday weekend, you know, because people were like, hold them in contempt now. I just want to explain to everybody the way that the government sort of works is that in order to do that criminal contempt referral, you have to have a vote in the House. You need to have your House staff there. You need to have people at the DOJ to receive your criminal referrals. Nobody's there. It's the holiday weekend. Everybody's gone. And it was like, well, work through the holiday. And it's like you would be forcing hundreds and hundreds of people to to work through a weekend to do that. And, you know, honestly, I don't think it's going to make that much of a big of a difference timeline wise in in the long run. If we if we wait a week, second of all, you know, I think they're waiting for them to actually no show. Sure. To their testimony, because, you know, their subpoena said documents and, and testimony all in the same subpoena. And in order to violate the subpoena, I feel like legally you would have to violate both parts of it. But anyway, coming out of this weekend, though, like before the weekend, Dana, the members were saying like, well, we're going to start thinking about considering criminal contempt and mm-hmm. we're going to urge and hope. It and sounded very Susan Colony. It did. <laughs> no pun on that last the butchering <laughs> of her name. Wow. It works. It does. <laughs> yeah, just keep it. But now they're coming out this today after the weekend with stronger language. Should these four refuse to show up this week at the end of this week? Adam Schiff said, quote, now we have a Justice Department that is independent under Merrick Garland, and it believes in a rule of law. If witnesses do not show up, we will hold them in criminal contempt. We will vote them in contempt of the House and we will refer them for prosecution. Will not considering it, thinking about it, batting it around. Will. And Jamie Raskin also said today about other subpoenas, the uh, law applies to everybody, including former presidents and including friends of former presidents who are facilitating the incitement of violent insurrection against the union. And he also tweeted about the, you know, women for Trump and uh, all those ladies, Cleta, you know, which is the female Cletus, I guess, quote, organizers of January 6th feeder rallies have one day left to comply with House subpoenas and turn over relevant records. Those who defy lawful orders of Congress to cover up insurrectionary violence will face referral for criminal prosecution. And he he adds, at the very least. So I want to reiterate again, for criminal referral to be made, the House must vote on it. And then they have to draft the referrals and then they have to submit the Department of Justice. As I've said, as have many experts have also said this with regards to the four dickbags of the apocalypse. Mm hmm. That the House will most likely wait until they know show for testimony before they move forward with the beginning the process to refer them to main justice for prosecution. Again, those days for testimony are tomorrow and Friday. They must call a quorum and then they must vote. And then if that passes, they have to draft the referrals. I'm giving them until next week to get that done. And if we learn they aren't going to take the criminal referral route or weeks go by, I will be mad. I promise I'll get mad. But we can't expect the impossible here. We can't expect them to Uh, you know, refer for crimes before the crime has been fully committed. And further, with regards to inherent contempt, we do not know that there's even enough Democrats in the House to move forward with that. And while I wish they would use it, and we've always talked about it, and they, you know, they haven't used it in 90 years, it's like, yeah, but it is a power that they have. They're an equal branch of government. It's very unlikely in, in these cases. All the members are pushing for criminal referral. So that's where we are. So let's see what they do. Let's see indeed. And we're going to stay in the House for this next story. Pelosi said in a press conference today that there will be fewer than $3.5 trillion to spend on the reconciliation plan and that Dems in the House are going to have to move forward with those negotiations because she will not put a bill that will fail in the Senate. She won't put it forward. Now, while Dems may disagree on what will be in the bill and how much it will cost, they all agree it has to get done. So the progressives, the progressives need to be happy. Well, they need to agree to. 
<laughs> lowering. Um, yeah. with they, a don't, lower. they don't have to be happy. They don't have to be happy. But you, <laughs> they do have to agree to something lower than the $3.5 trillion price tag. And the entire caucus will need to be satisfied by how they dial back the cost. Pelosi said today that they will either have to pull some provisions out or they will keep all the provisions, but decrease how long those programs will be in effect. But the fact remains, it's not going to be the $3.5 trillion. That's just going to be the bottom line. Pelosi said in a letter to her colleagues that the overwhelming guidance she is receiving from her colleagues is to do fewer things. Now, Rep. Mark Bacon said today that however it shakes out, child care, child tax credits, some of the Medicare expansion items, family leave, and drug prices will obviously stay. So that's important. Many Democrats, including progressives, have said they think they might be able to get this done by the end of the month. So we're going to see if we can get this done by by the Halloweens. Yeah, I hope they don't do fewer things well. I hope they don't cut out just chunks of it and do do less. I hope that they do all of the stuff, but for five years instead of 10 years. Absolutely. I agree I mean, with you because some community is going to feel like they got slighted if they pull out the a few of the if they if they are part of the fewer things. Yeah. And I mean, the math isn't going to be exactly right, but if you do it for half the time, it should cost about half mm-hmm. of the money. I'm, I'm not taking into account inflation or any other variables. Sure. I'm sure there's a lot of non-zero nets here, but you you know, you're bringing it down to about 1.7, 1.8 trillion. And my understanding is, is Manchin, at least Manchin has agreed to the 1.9 to $2.3 trillion range. So I say go for five years. And then in 2024, Run saying run on the on the fact that if you if we don't win, all that shit's going to expire. It's a great idea. Great idea. That's what I would personally do. Plus, you don't want to have to be uh, anyone saying we're going to have to cut out the pre-K. Yeah, no we're going to have to cut child. We're going to have to cut some of the climate change stuff. That's just not that important to us. You know, we'd rather do it half-assed for 10 years than full bore for five. Like who the f- I, I it would be politically bad, I think, to do it the other way. And you'll you'll you could get primaried for for trying to cut shit out of the bill. Absolutely. And the Biden administration has urged the courts yet again to step in and suspend the new Texas law that banned most abortions since early September. And as clinics hundreds of miles away remain busy with Texas patients making long journeys for care, you know, and that was part of the original lawsuit that the Department of Justice filed against SB8. This latest attempt Monday night comes three days after the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals reinstated the abortion law after a brief two-day window last week in which Texas abortion providers could perform abortions. And that was when the district court agreed with the Department of Justice and enjoined SB8. They blocked it, right? And then, of course, Texas asked the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal for a stay pending litigation Texas Fifth Circuit, or excuse me, Fifth Circuit. You might as well call it the Texas Fifth Circuit because that's kind of <laughs> what it is. basically what's happening. Uh, Fifth Circuit put that short administrative stay on there. And now the DOJ has filed another thing arguing no permanent, you know, or stay pending the full litigation of the on the merits, please. The days ahead could be key in determining the immediate future of the law, SB8, including whether there's another attempt to have the Supreme Court weigh in. So basically, Department of Justice is responding to the Fifth Circuit, asking them to suspend SB8 again while they work out their lawsuit. They did not go directly to the Supreme Court. I thought that they would, but Joyce Vance brought up a great point today. She said it was probably in hopes to get an explanation on at least the merits or the vigilante part from the Fifth Circuit. The more they talk, the more the Department of Justice has to argue against 
when they do go to SCOTUS. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So we'll keep you posted on this case as it moves as it moves ahead. But meanwhile, you know, the fucked up thing about this entire thing is that what we're bandying around is a constitutional right to an abortion. Our constitutional rights yeah, of Texans. That's absolutely what it is. And speaking of more fucked up this, as we would call it down in Texas, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas issued a broad executive order on Monday that AG basically bars virtually any coronavirus vaccine mandate in the state, which is just not, I mean, it's just (laughs) ridiculous. Abbott has been among the most vocal, as we know, political leaders in the United States opposing vaccine mandates, even though he got his vaccine a long fucking time ago. His latest executive order includes private employers, which has been exempt from previous edicts against the mandates. This is just really interesting because as a private business, you you get to make your own choices. That's what a private business is. You know, shirt, no shoes, no service. You can do what's constitutional, but not illegal. It is likely that this will end up in court. Of course it will. Abbott will probably lose because the courts have a long history of upholding vaccine mandates, first of all, in part because people who oppose mandates are not the only individuals who have their rights taken into account. They're not the only people in these stores, basically. (laughs) The order may be hard to enforce because of its broad scope and timing. This is from Josh Blackman who is a constitutional law professor at South Texas College of Law in Houston. He says companies that operate in multiple states will have to wrestle with whether it applies to them merely by having some operations in Texas. I mean, there's places that like American Airlines is based in Texas and they have hubs all over the country. I mean, it's those sorts of things, those sorts of companies. So we'll we'll see what happens with this. Yeah. And there's a whole supremacy clause argument, right? Like American Airlines helped was part of a contractor for the federal government helping to airlift refugees out of Afghanistan. So they are Mm -hmm. a federal contractor. The federal government has the power to require federal government workers and contractors to get vaccinated. And so for a Texas governor to say not in my state violates the supremacy clause of 14th Amendment. Uh, So like, fuck off. I hate this guy (laughs) so hard. I know it's hard. That's what my legal brief would say. It violates the supremacy clause, 14th Amendment. So like, fuck off. <laughs> I'm telling you, if someone would just announce a primary, Beto, to get to Greg Abbott, I mean, they would be uh, the money that would flow in. It, it, they would break records in a 24 hour period. Let's get this guy out of office. This is enough is enough is enough. I know. I know. Uh, yeah. Announce. Uh, announce. Beto. OK. Beto. All right. Yes. And I know his position on guns and stuff. And I, you could, there's a six hour argument that we could have about whether he's the best down to put forward in the state or not. I think he is. But he keeps three points behind Cruz in a statewide and election. And that was when what I think the first uh, remember at the beginning of the voting too, all of the votes were being switched. Mm-hmm. Like if you did, if you voted down ballot, they would just switch them over to Republican. Like there was so much shenanigans happening that I still believe he won that election. Yeah. But that's just my opinion. No, true. And it would just be a good time to announce he can beat him in a statewide there because we don't have to worry about the new shitty gerrymandering maps because it's a statewide election. All right. Yep. Ah, after this break, I have an amazing discussion with Dr. Fiona Hill and her new book, There Is Nothing For You Here. It's a really great discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Getting a good night's sleep is essential to having a productive day and a very nice life. Honestly, sleeping is my favorite thing. I used to toss and turn all night and I would wake up feeling exhausted. I'd have a hard time getting through my day, but then I found Helix Sleep and I realized I had the wrong mattress. 
to get the best night's sleep of your life, do what I did. Take the online sleep quiz. Just go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. And Helix will match your sleep preferences and body type with a mattress that's perfect for you. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. They have mattresses that regulate body temperature. And they have mattresses that are great for spinal alignment and improving morning pains. And they have the Helix Plus for our beautiful plus-size sleepers, too. My quiz matched me with a Helix Midnight because I like a medium firm mattress and I sleep on my side, so it's perfect for me. And now I wake up feeling rested and refreshed and energized for the whole day. Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews and was awarded number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by both GQ and Wired Magazine. Helix has been recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as solutions for improving sleep. They have a 10-year warranty and you can try it out for 100 sleeps risk-free. And they have financing options and flexible payment plans, so a great night's sleep is never far away. And Helix right now is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for listeners at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. That's helixsleep, H-E-L-I-X sleep.com slash dailybeans for up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows. Today's show is also brought to you by Chili Sleep. Now, lowering your core body temperature is proven to be the most effective means for achieving and maintaining deep sleep. Temperature-controlled sleep restores testosterone levels, it repairs muscles, and it improves cognitive functions so you wake up alert and sharp. Chili Sleep offers customizable climate-controlled sleep solutions to help improve your overall well-being. And this is how it works. They have the Uller and Cube systems. And this is basically mattress toppers that are hydro-powered that go over your mattress to provide the ideal temperature for sleeping. No matter how hot or cold you sleep, these luxurious mattress pads keep your bed at the ideal temperature for deep sleep. They're designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deeply, right? Get that REM stuff that we need. And they give you confidence and energy to power through your day. Just imagine starting the day without any fatigue. With Chili Sleep, you can do just that. For me, Chili Sleep has been a lifesaver. You know, I get night sweats, perimenopausal. Oh, it's, it's tough. Uh, but I've been sleeping so much better since I started using it. So head over to ChiliSleep.com beans to learn more and check out a special offer available exclusively for Daily Beans listeners and only for a limited time. That's ChiliSleep, C-H-I-L-I sleep.com slash beans to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every day. Everybody, welcome back. I'm honored today to be joined by the author of the new book, There's Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. She testified in the impeachment 1.0 of Donald. Please welcome Fiona Hill. Hello. Hey, Alison. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm so glad to talk to you today because your book is so riveting. And, you know, at first I was like, I'm not going to be able to relate to the, you know, somebody on the National Security Council. But I can relate to so much that's in this book. And I know a lot of people and I know a lot of women can also relate to to many of the things that you talk about as we go through this book. And and first, I, I wanted to ask you about the title and how it relates to the journey you took from being a coal miner's daughter to being the senior director of European and Russian affairs on the National Security Council. It's quite a it's quite a journey. Can you talk about that and the title of the book? Yeah, well, the title of the book, There's Nothing For You Here, came from something that my dad said to me one day when I was walking home with him from a job I had in a local pub. My hometown was a former coal mining town with all kind of associated industries. It was a pretty rough place because all of the work had uh, disappeared. The mines had closed down, the big manufacturing plants had closed down, the factories were closing down, you name it. And a lot of people were turning to drink. You know, the local pubs were the one place that the, um, you know, the economy was booming. And, you know, in the UK, yeah, you know, I said drinking laws are very different from the United States. I'd got a job in the local pub. My dad was at this point working in the hospital opposite the particular pub that I was working in on, on nights. And at closing time, if he was off work, he would walk over to pick me up on foot. <laughs> We'd walk back home together and talk. And in this period, you know, I was applying for college 
it was uh, a massive youth unemployment crisis in the United Kingdom, especially in the north of England. 90% of kids who were leaving school in that year, 1984, had nothing else to go on to when they left. It didn't mean they wouldn't eventually find a job, but they'd got nothing lined up. You know, only 10% of kids had. And I had uh, been very lucky that I'd got a place at university. And only a five or 6% of kids in the whole of the UK at that point went on to a university, you know, kind of a, it was much higher, obviously, in the United States in that same uh, time frame. But, you know, the benefit uh, for me was that as a, as a poor kid, the kind of a former coal miner in a, you know, pretty down at heel town, you know, from a, a poor socioeconomic background, I was going to get that whole education paid for me by our local education authority, by the government, equivalent to the kinds of things that, you know, people, you know, have had from Pell Grants and other, you know, subsidies uh, from the state in the United States. And so there wasn't that barrier to go into university. I'd done well at school. I'd been able to apply and to go. But then the next thing was, what after that? And my dad was basically saying as we were walking home, but you know, there's nothing for here, pet. You know, when you, when you leave, you know, college, if you get your way through college, you know, you won't be able to come back here. You'll have to look for somewhere else to go and work and figure out what you want to do. And it was essentially also telling me, I don't want you to come back here because, you know, there's nothing, you know, for you here where you could really kind of build a whole life and career for yourself. My dad had found a job in the local hospital after all the closures of mines and steelworks and brickyard, brickyard works where he'd um, also uh, worked for a particular point. But, you know, for him, that was it. He was kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a pretty grim message. And it also made me very sad because, you know, I love my dad. I love my family. I actually like my home area. But every opportunity, educational job, life was just disappearing. What prompted you to move to the United States? Well, that came through an educational opportunity. I went off to a four-year degree in St. Andrews University in Scotland. I won a scholarship to go and study in the Soviet Union in 1987-1988. When I was there in the Soviet Union, it was the high point of the cemetery between Gorbachev and Reagan. And I actually got a job as a stringer for NBC News during the Gorbachev-Reagan summit in Moscow in the um, early summer of 1988, you know, the end of the time that I was there. And of course, being a stringer, you know, um, until uh, a, a string of not very glamorous jobs, I spread Tom Brokaw's hair. You know, he was uh, the, you know, the lead anchor there for the nightly news as he was standing on the top of this hotel overlooking the Kremlin and the wind was blowing his hair around. He'd go, where's the girl with the hairspray? And I'd run up and go, Psh, you know, kind of, and hope it was going to hold in place. And then I got asked to make coffee for Maria Shriver. And I was like very excited because I mean, I, you know, I didn't really know exactly who Maria Shriver was, but I knew she was married to Arnold Schwarzenegger. I knew who he was. And I was like, oh, I've got to go make coffee. And, you know, my idea of coffee was opening a Nescafe packet, <laughs> pouring it in some water and clinking it around with a spoon. I'm from the UK. We make tea. And coffee was disgusting. And he was an American uh, drip coffee machine. I was like, what the hell is this? I mean, it looked like, you know, kind of a nuclear submarine to me. I had no idea what to do with this. There was these pieces of paper. I read there were filters. There was coffee granules. There was, you know, I suppose water somewhere. I was making an absolute mess. I was pouring the water in the wrong place. I didn't know what to do with the filter. There was coffee all over the place. And a man came in, turned out to be an American professor who was helping out with, you know, senior advising at the, for the programming. He said, what are you doing? I explained, hey, I'm sorry, I'm British. I don't know how to use this. I've never seen one before. So he showed me how to switch it on, put the water in, put the paper in, clean up the mess. And then he's saying, so what are you doing with yourself? I said, I was a student. I was figuring out what's next to do. And, you know, I'd never been to the US before. This was very exciting, you know, working in this environment. He said, you know, there are scholarships in the United States. And I was like, really? You know, and I could apply for one. So said, could. And so he tells me, you know, what I need to do. And so I did. 
you know, I thought, my goodness, what an amazing piece of information. Who knew? I mean, obviously he knew. <laughs> I didn't know. You know, so I uh, made a trip over, first of all, to the British Embassy, talked to the cultural attaché. He tells me, go to the American Embassy, I'll, I'll help you figure this out. And the next thing, I'm applying to all of these scholarships in the United States to see the other side of the Cold War. And I mean, what, what an amazing opportunity that opened itself up. Yeah. And, and, you know, I guess, you know, being in the Soviet Union, 87, 88, has had to have, you know, and also studied in Russia, had to really inform sort of things that you went on to do later. I mean, it's almost like you were clandestine or not clandestine, you were destined. Uh, other things are clandestine, but not. Yes, this. exactly. Particularly in my uh, <laughs> line of work. Yeah, yeah. You see, you want to make a Freudian slip there. <laughs> but it seems like, yeah, it seems like you were destined to sort of to take the route that, that you've taken. It's kind of amazing sort of what the universe sort of uh, puts, lays out in front of you as a path. And that sort of brings me to how you came to work for the Trump administration, because it was actually KT McFarlane. And, and I, was, I was surprised to read that here in the book. I didn't know this. It was KT McFarlane, deputy number two to Mike Flynn that first approached you about this. And, and you know, we, we know we're familiar with KT McFarlane with regards to Bud McFarlane and the Middle East Marshall Plan with Flynn and all those other stories that we've covered, but also, you know, that she had sort of, you know, information relayed back and forth possibly to Trump while she was in Mar-a-Lago. And, and I think, where was, where was Flynn? The Dominican Republic or something when he was making his phone calls. But she's very, uh, a very big part of that. But t- can you tell us how, how this came to pass, how it was you ran into KT McFarlane who, who, who sought you out to come for this position? Yeah, well, look, like most people, people have all kinds of backstories, right? And she's, started off her life also wanting to kind of, you know, break into kind of a, a White House position, work for a president, you know, kind of with advising. But, but back in the day when she started off, the only job that a woman could get was as a secretary. So she actually starts off as a secretary and in the press pool, works her way up over various administrations, mostly, of course, Republican administrations, you know, and, and ends up, you know, working for Reagan, you know, et cetera. And then, of course, she has a, a program on Fox News. And she's also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Now I'm sure everyone's going, ah, yes, hidden government there. But the Council of Foreign Relations is, you know, obviously um, a membership organization of professionals from all kinds of different backgrounds. And I had written a book in 2013 about Vladimir Putin. It was kind of the culmination of a lot of work I'd been doing following Putin, you know, since uh, 2000, talking about the clandestine element you were you know, referring to. <laughs> it was one of these, again, weird coincidences that I start my job at the Brookings Institution as a pretty junior fellow. At the same time, Vladimir Putin becomes the president of Russia. Bit of a weird coincidence, but actually, you know, it, it enables me to start following him, you know, right from uh, the very beginning. And, you know, I was looking, obviously, as most people are when, you know, they have a book and nobody knows them, but you've got this book that you think, you know, people would enjoy reading or be interested in. I was looking for any outlets, you know, hopefully that, you know, somebody would be interested in talking about my book. I gave a talk on a panel, a very small panel, almost nobody came to at the Council on Foreign Relations, but KT came. She was very interested and she invited me onto her program. And then I did um, a couple of times onto her program, DEFCON 3 on Fox uh, News, the streaming version. And then I did, uh, along with my colleague who I co-wrote the book with on Putin, Clifford Gaddy, an economist at uh, Brookings, we did a second edition after the Russians annexed Crimea mm. and you know, basically started off the whole war in Ukraine. And Katie invited me back in again and to talk to her. And we just, you know, started talking a lot. And it was always very neutral, nothing political, nothing partisan. She was very interested in Russia. She um, knew a lot about Putin and, you know, kind of a lot of foreign affairs, national security issues. And then suddenly she's on the Trump campaign. And not only KT, but General Flynn had actually worked at the 
chairman's office and the joint chiefs of staff when I was the national intelligence officer for Russia back between 2006 and 2009. And then he'd gone to there to head the department, uh, the, the defense intelligence agency, so the intel department for the defense uh, sector. I had had no contact with him since then, but I'd worked really closely with him on Russia during that period I was there. And he'd been you know, perfectly sensible in that context. And so the two of them remembered me. I had no affiliation you know, whatsoever with the campaign or with any of uh, you know, the political aspects of this. And they needed someone you know, to turn to, to ask about Russia. And <laughs> it, it was me because I'd written a book. <laughs> you know, Katie actually had the book there. They wanted to talk about Putin and Russia. And the next thing I'm being asked you know, will I kind of come in to talk to them? I never actually got to meet with Flynn because, you know, it actually also be removed before I even, you know, got anywhere near the administration. But Katie thought that I could sit down, as I had with both Bush and then with Obama and, you know, on many other occasions that she'd seen me at and have just a kind of a straightforward, blunt talk about Putin to Trump. Well, that was kind of pie in the sky. (laughs) We all know that he doesn't really listen to anybody. I think, you know, Katie had kind of thought that he might. And that's how I ended up where I ended up. But the other thing was behind the scenes, there were lots of people that I'd worked with previously, detailed over from different parts of the government, non-political, non-partisan, professional career civil servants, many of whom I knew from all of my other jobs as national intelligence officer. And the whole idea was that we were going to try to do something to deal with this, you know, whole Russia mess behind the scenes. Hmm. Of course, you know, the rest is history, as they say, and things didn't really kind of pan out quite as intended. (laughs) Yeah, not quite. To say the least, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and that's interesting, too, that, you you know, you talk about General Flynn in, in the before times, so to speak, and how there wasn't sort of any indication. And I mean, what a what a departure uh, it must seem like from working with him previously to working, you know, with him for a couple of months, I guess. Or he, you know, he was. No, out. I never even I never oh, even saw it. That's right. I, yeah. So I'd actually never physically seen him. This is the kind of weirdness <laughs> right. of everything since I'd left the National Intelligence Council mm-hmm. and a very brief encounter when he went over to the Defense Intelligence Agency. And after that, no contact. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it took me a while to think, is this the same guy? Mm-hmm. You know, when I kind of saw him during the campaign. And then and then now, you know, with. Nope. Yeah, it's I just mean, keep you know, just continual sharp right turns to to where I I I can't even articulate. And and this is kind of where I wanted to talk to you about the misogyny that was happening in in the Trump administration. Because you there was sort of this, like you said, pie in the sky idea that you were going to have a serious sit down talk as a Putin expert, as a Russia expert with Donald Trump. And that never panned out. In fact, kind of the opposite happened. And can you talk a little bit about some of the interactions that early on interactions that you had with the president in the Oval Office? Oh, well, right from the very beginning, it was a kind of a, who's this person? I mean, didn't even look up on the first time that I encountered him. And, you know, the next time he thought I was the secretary and, you know, asked me basically to go and type up some changes he wanted to do to the press release during you know, a meeting after a, a phone call, well, it was during a phone call with Putin, but immediately afterwards, instead of, as I thought, you know, we'd be discussing, you know, the import of the call. I was the only Russian speaker in the room. You know, I was there as the, you know, senior director for Russia, but no, you know, he had no idea who I was. And even if he had, I don't think he would have cared because there was another occasion when I did get introduced to him properly and he looked at me and probably for the first and only time. And KT said, Mr. President, you know, this is your new Russia advisor, Fiona Hill. She's written the book on Putin. You know, I think you really enjoy, you know, talking to her. He looked at me, looked at her, and then there was a whole 
bunch of the cabinet members in the Oval Office seated around him. And he said, Rex does Russia, which is an immediate, you know, kind of, but not you. And Rex meaning Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State. I exchanged awkward looks with Rex Tillerson, who I'd actually uh, met before because, you know, as a Russian expert, I've actually met him, you know, when he was CEO <laughs> of ExxonMobil. And I thought, well, that's that then. Um, you know, so that plan was obviously going to go nowhere. So, you know, I resolved after that that I was going to focus on my interactions with everybody else and trying to just get across as much as I possibly could about the perils and risks and, you know, potentially, possibly, perhaps, and opportunities for working with Putin and the Russians. Because the whole main point then was to try to figure out how we basically got them out of our politics. All of these intrusions, the hacking, you know, in cyberspace, we'd have to work across the entire government to do this. How we would keep them out of our electoral systems in the future, I'd have to work with, you know, colleagues at the Department of Homeland Security, you know, people like Chris Krebs, who, you know, people may have heard and seen out on the television. I mean, these were all my counterparts across different parts of government. And as a result, I was just going to work with them as much as I could. And, you know, kind of give up on the idea that I was ever going to influence anything that, you know, Donald Trump would, would think about Putin or anything else in my portfolio. I also had Ukraine, Turkey, the whole of Europe, the European Union and NATO in my portfolio. So, you know, I saw him on numerous occasions all the time in all these different settings. And each time it was almost as if I was, I was invisible, actually. It wasn't as if I was invisible. I was invisible. And you you also talk in the book a little bit about a nickname that you had found out. I think you were talking to a reporter and learned that maybe Reince Priebus and some others had, had a nickname yeah. for you. Yeah, it was kind of amazing because, I mean, I, I figured out that none of them had paid any attention to me at the, you know, the White House inner circle. And, you know, the party was doing a feature, you know, for me, uh, about me in an interview said, you know, did you know, by the way, that they had a nickname for you? I was like, no, did they? <laughs> wow. No, what was it? And he said, oh, Russia bitch. I was like, oh, yeah, figures. <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay. Um, you know, disparaging, but, you know, also strangely complimentary at the same time. You know, so I got, I thought to myself, well, well, actually, maybe they have noticed me. Hmm. Yeah. But, you know, but, but, you know, to what effect was a, you know, was a different matter because the, this was, you know, obviously also meant to disparage and push away, nothing to hear here or nothing to look at here. They didn't want to know actually, you know, what substantive issues I could bring to the table. No, I'm, I'm, I mean, I imagine they thought you didn't have any substantive ideas to bring to the table. Yeah, I mean, I was a sort of a nondescript middle-aged woman. You know, I describe this in the book, you know, I mean, you know, well into my 50s. You know, it's kind of, um, you know, you're just not a non-player. And that was really, you know, described and laid out to me. But that was not the case for, you know, the professional staff or the other cabinet members. Right. I did not get that at all from the cabinet secretaries who I interacted with all the national security advisors that I work with, which is H.R. McMaster and then John Bolton. On the contrary, the greatest respect for me as I did for them. And, you know, we had lots of substantive discussions. So it wasn't all lost. It was just at the very top, you know, the president played true to type, you know, as you know, we'd all have uh, suspected that he's uh, the misogyny that we saw in the campaign trail, you know, was brought into the Oval Office with only a few exceptions. And even then, you know, for people he clearly respected like Kellyanne Conway, the whole language and the ways that he interacted with them was, you know, very sexist. Yeah. And I, I, you mentioned Bolton, and I want to talk a little bit about Bolton and the shadow Ukraine policy and some of the other things that you had mentioned about, particularly about that call the where you were the only Russia speaker and how it, how it ended up being characterized by, by the group of the people, by, by a bunch of people who didn't speak Russian. But I have to take a quick break. Will you stay with me? Of course. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, everybody. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's Allison Gill from Beans. And I want to thank Scribd for sponsoring this segment of the podcast. 
Have you ever spent more time browsing for entertainment than actually enjoying it? When it comes to picking out new books and audiobooks, I'm always having difficulty choosing. But Scribd saves me time and makes choosing my next book much easier. Scribd gives you access to millions of ebooks, audiobooks, and magazines, as well as thoughtfully curated editor's picks and smart recommendations based on your reading habits. It's pretty awesome. Scribd is the ultimate reading subscription service, letting you explore all your interests in any format you choose ebooks, audiobooks, magazines. You can get dissertations and court documents there too. Sometimes you notice if you, you know, click on a court document I've tweeted, it takes you to Scribd. You can get access to all of it unlimited for only $9.99 a month. You get an entire library for less than the cost of one book. And there's no complicated credits to worry about or additional purchases required. And you're not going to have credits expire. And if you're not sure what to read, they have the latest technology. Scribd comes up with this algorithm along with the best human minds to recommend content for you that you'll love. And if you want to change things up, you're free to switch between titles, genres, and formats anytime on your phone, tablet, or computer. And right now we're offering listeners of this show a free 60-day trial. So go to try.scribd.com slash dailybeans for your free trial. That's try.scribd, S-C-R-I-B-D, dot com slash dailybeans to get 60 days of Scribd for free. And today's show is also brought to you by my favorite puzzle game. It's called Best Fiends. It's strategery, right? It's not just crushing same colored things in rows of threes. So if you're looking for a great mobile game to keep your anxiety low, but your mind sharp, you have to try Best Fiends. It's amazing. It is my favorite match three style game by far, far and away. They have different color schemes. It's relaxing. I love the music. So and they have an exciting storyline in Best Fiends, too. There's good guys, the fiends, and there's not so good guys, the slugs. And you start out with little tiny fiends. But as you play, they become more powerful. You can level them up and they have different utilizations. So you have to strategically, you know, deploy your fiends. It's really it's so much fun and relaxing. And the puzzles get increasingly more challenging. And with Best Fiends, you get an action packed adventure and a brain boosting puzzle game all at once. And for me, it functions as a nice chill break. Like I said, it, it de-stresses me. So Best Fiends has literally thousands of levels too, and they have more added all the time. So there's always something fresh, always a new challenge to look forward to, whether I need a fun break from reality or a mental boost to keep my brain sharp. You can download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Everybody, welcome back. We're talking to the author of There's Nothing For You Here, Fiona Hill. Fiona, before the break, you had mentioned you didn't get that sort of vibe from cabinet members and, and folks like John Bolton. And I wanted to ask you about John Bolton and specifically about something that hit the news really hard. And that was the meeting, especially after you testified about this in the impeachment trial, the meeting where John Bolton had mentioned something about what Rudy Giuliani was doing in Ukraine and referred to it as a drug deal and then walked out of that meeting. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that meeting? Can you like recreate it for us because it's an absolutely fascinating piece of testimony and incredible in the book. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, the sort of fitful meeting when it becomes apparent to me and to everyone else that um, there is no longer really the main thrust of national security policy towards Ukraine, but Ukraine has is on the verge of becoming privatized and certainly part of the sort of domestic political scene. And also that President uh, Trump, all these people around President Trump at this particular juncture, it wasn't clear it was Trump himself always directing it and orchestrating it, but that people were seeing Ukraine as part of the campaign to get Trump re-elected. And it was already you know, underway, even though we were still some way out there from uh, the actual election. So what happens here is that um, one of the advisors, the key advisors to the new president of Ukraine, President Zelensky, and some others have come they're hoping to get a White House meeting with President Trump because, you know, Ukraine is always trying to show that it has the support of the United States in its struggle with Russia. And Ambassador Bolton and others, you know, myself included, quite reluctant to set up this meeting at this particular juncture because 
it's not quite clear where this is all going to go. And there isn't, you know, kind of really a you know, particular frame for a meeting at this, uh, at this point. And also we're starting to get a little bit worried about, you know, what might actually happen in this meeting. Worries that weren't misplaced by the time we get the phone call, you know, down the line between Trump and uh, Zelensky. And so um, basically uh, they're coming into the meeting. President um, uh, Zelensky's envoys are talking about trying to get a meeting. We have Ambassador Sondland, the ambassador of the EU, not to Ukraine, who's there because our U- ambassador to uh, Ukraine, Maria Yovanovitch, Master Yovanovitch, has been sacked at this point as part of some of these machinations around Ukraine that she was getting in the way of. And, you know, they're basically pushing to try to get uh, this meeting. Ambassador Bolton saying, well, you know, not quite there yet. And then suddenly Ambassador Sondland, the ambassador of the EU, interjects and says, well, you know, kind of, we've already got an agreement, you know, to have a meeting, you know, if there are, uh, you know, some movement on uh, these energy issues. And Ambassador Bolton clearly knows there's something afoot here. He stiffens, he sits up, we're all like, well, hang on, what's going on? And he ends the meeting. And then the next thing is that the Ukrainians on Ambassador Sondland and there's some other people there with them decamp down to a room right by the White House Situation Room, the, the wardroom. It's actually all right also next to the Navy mess in this very tight little um, set of corridors in the West Wing of the White House. And this is also extraordinarily unusual. And Ambassador Bolton sends me after them to see what's up, uh, what's going on there, and asks me to come back and report. And of course, I get down there and it becomes clear Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who is our director from Ukraine, is in the midst of you know, what's turning out to be a bit of an argument with Ambassador Sondland, who's kind of taken Ukraine as part of his portfolio. To the effect that um, Sondland is basically saying that he's got an agreement from Mick Mulvaney and others that if the Ukrainians agree to open some investigations, and this is into Burisma, the energy firm that former Vice President Biden's son Hunter Biden has been on the board of, you know, then they can have their Oval Office meeting. And we're like, whoa, okay, hang on, you know, what's going on here? That's why, you know, kind of then have to run back up to tell Ambassador Bolton about this as everyone's left. And Ambassador Bolton then, you know, famously says, you go and tell the lawyers over in the National Security Council that I am not part of whatever drug deal Mulvaney and, you know, Giuliani and Sondland and others are all basically cooking up here. And, you know, I duly go off and kind of report all that. And that's, you know, the moment when we realize that there's the, an effort to privatize you know, foreign policy and national security policy. You know, there's there's things going on here that have nothing to do, you know, with the stuff that we were working on in terms of trying to sort of stabilize the Ukrainian-US relations. There's something else going on entirely. And after Masha Ivanovich had been put in the crosshairs and it was obvious that she was going to get removed and did get removed, I'd gone to Bastard and said, look, is there something we can do here? This is preposterous. This is one of our finest diplomats. Um, should we've got to be able to push back here? And, you know, obviously it was Rudy Giuliani was in the mix here. And Ambassador Bolton said to me very famously again, you know, I mentioned this also in the testimony, that Rudy Giuliani was a hand grenade that was going to blow everyone up. And of course, you know, we get fast forward to the impeachment trial. President Trump has had this phone call that we'd all been trying to avoid with President Zelensky of Ukraine that you know, was supposed to substitute for a meeting, you know, the Oval Office or some presidential meeting. And he's openly asking President Zelensky of Ukraine to open up investigations <laughs> into Biden and uh, his son. Yeah, do me a favor. And, though. you know, which was, a, yeah, do me a favor. I mean, the famous line. And it, that was completely shocking because I had not witnessed him do anything so blatant in any call or any setting before. It was always much more subtle, talking around things, making a joke, 
you know, that you might be in two minds as to what he really meant, although you were pretty sure he meant the, you know, the not so great interpretation of, you know, what he had just said. But this is the first time that I had certainly heard him be so brazen. I was just as shocked as everyone else. And that was when it all came crystal clear to me that the president was orchestrating this, not Giuliani and, um, or not just, let's say, Giuliani and some business associates who clearly wanted to, you know, do business and you know, had all kinds of other interests in Ukraine, that this was about the U.S. presidential elections. Yeah. And, and as we know, Trump famously said about the call, it was a perfect call. It was tremendous. And you, you address that kind of behavior in the book, too, sort of this. You say that it, the, the chapter 13, The Horrible Year, which is in reference to 2020, and some days I still feel stuck in March of that year, I have to say. But yeah, I think, well, we all are still in many respects, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. And you say and it was March 13th, you know, also yeah. of 2020, a Friday the 13th, that we all went into mostly into massive lockdown. It wasn't a great day. No, it wasn't. And, and we felt like we were there forever. And uh, you say in the book, you say, quote, I was immediately struck by how much the US, UK and Russia, the three countries that had defined my personal and professional life, now resembled each other in their failure to mount a serious, well-coordinated response to the pandemic. And that response was kind of a window into other similarities. Uh, you know, as you, you drew a line through Reaganism, Thatcherism, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and the impact that those things have on current events. And I want to talk about the parallels between those uh, three countries and how we, you know, we're in danger of kind of sliding towards modern Russia. But this particular way that he the way that Trump sort of just everything's great everything's good I'm I win I win all the time and that's what sort of separated him from Thatcher and Reagan right you because you, you drew parallels but also there was a difference and it was kind of his self-obsessiveness and you tell a story earlier in the book about that call that you mentioned before the break where you were the only Russia speaker in the room it came after mm-hmm. the missile strike on Syria and you actually had a different impression from what was said on the phone. Right. But after after they hung up, after after they hung up, everyone was like, great call. Awesome job. High five. And uh, all right, let's go to lunch. Uh, but can you talk about that just a little a, a little bit? Because I'm interested to know how you would characterize that particular phone call. Well, I mean, the, so the phone call was the first since the missile strike uh, between Trump and Putin. Everything has to be interpreted, right? I mean, we have a State Department interpreter that interprets the president for the Russians, and the Russians have their own interpreter. So, um, you know, it's not always easy for everyone to hear, you know, the, the speaker behind the interpreter. They listen to the interpreter's voice. Uh, and, you know, many interpreters have mellifluous tones. In some respects, I mean, our interpreters for the president are women, you know, who soften off, you know, all the rough edges. And, you know, sometimes that's the, the same for the counterpart you know, the different tone of voice, you know, different way in which they're expressing things. And Russian is a very rich language. There's a lot of nuance in it that, you know, sometimes, you know, it takes a whole paragraph to explain in, um, in English. And it's got a couple of words, you know, in Russian, they go, oh, hang on, that was an interesting word choice. That's conveying, you know, X or Y. And I've been listening really intently to what um, Putin was saying behind the translator, because the translator doesn't always catch it. And I was trained as an interpreter actually in Moscow. I spent that year when I was in Moscow, 87, 88, I was at a translator's institute. It's what I thought I might do. I thought that I might become a professional translator, maybe at the United Nations or something like this. You know, I didn't anticipate that I would be in this position. I'd spent a lot of time studying Russian and, you know, working on my translation skills. I'd actually, you know, earned money at different times doing translations. And so I was listening to this very intently and I thought, wow, you know, okay, there's a bit more menace here. You know, he's laying things out in a, you know, in a much harsher tone, but they're missing it completely because they're just getting the interpreter. 
you know, who is kind of smoothing things off, not always translating the word in, you know, quite the same way because the translators are pressed to, you know, get this out in real time. And, you know, everybody else in the room and Jared Kushner and Vanka Trump were there too, which had thrown me off for a bit, along with, you know, the senior directors for uh, the Middle East who were covering Syria, Rex Tillerson, his um, special assistant. You know, they were basically saying, what a great call. You know, that was like a great atmosphere. He sounded really friendly. I was like, he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) The translator sounded really friendly, but, you know, Vladimir Putin didn't actually. You know, he wasn't openly hostile, but there was, you know, things that he was saying there that we should have been paying attention to. And I was about to sort of interject and say something when then that's when, you know, I actually also had a headache and wasn't paying proper attention. I was in my notes trying to formulate, as you always do, what were you going to say to kind of convey, you know, probably in the few minutes you might have, you know, what had actually happened. And next thing, the president saying, hey, darling, are you listening to me? I was like, what, 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 me? She, and they said, can she do it? And I said, she, she do what? And I realized she wasn't Ivanka Trump and she wasn't Secretary Tillerson's uh, special assistant. She was me. And he thought that I was the the secretary because I was sitting next to the guy who was manning the phone and I was taking notes. And he thought that I could go and sort of retype out the press release for the great call that he just had. It was not my best professional moment. I had the deer in the headlights look. I wasn't quite sure what to do. I was confused. I was like, is he really talking to me? I guess he is. What do I do now? Mm. And nobody threw me a lifeline. Nobody said, oh, actually, you know, Mr. President, this is beyond ill. She's the Russia you know, senior director. But from Trump's point of view, just to kind of point this out and lay it out, he thought everybody was a secretary. And look, if you're called secretary of state, mm. secretary of defense, you know, homeland security, secretary, you know, these things, he's not far off in his mind. Everything was a secretariat. We were there just to push paper around or do the things that he asked, like the admin offices and the back offices in his businesses. Hmm. So even um, Rex Tillerson, having been CEO of ExxonMobil or General McMaster, basically a, a, an American war hero, a, a senior figure in uh, the, um, the US armed forces, for them, for him, once they became part of his staff, they were really you know, nothing uh, to you know, be particularly concerned about. For him, information trickled down, not up. And you know, once he became his staff, he was staff. Hmm. Yeah. And it, it seems like it seems like Donald Trump had a lot of translators, literally and figuratively speaking, who would just feed him the best. You know, everything's great. You're amazing. Yeah. I mean, the people who said something to the country didn't survive very long. Or, you know, they're like, you know, General Kelly, who uh, replaced Vince Priebus as the chief of staff. I mean, he was, you know, trying to be pretty tough and, you know, kind of bring order together. And it came too much for him. You know, General Mattis, who famously never you know, kind of uh, devolved himself in, or debased himself into, you know, these obsequious displays of adulation and, you know, affirmation of Trump. You know, Ambassador Bolton, I mean, never did that either. General McMaster certainly didn't. At one point, he walked out because Trump was being so rude. He just literally walked out of the Oval Office. We all had to kind of, you know, run around, you know, after him. All the people who tried to stand up and to push back and to say things as they were, you know, we're, we're kind of pushed out, marginalized, or in, you know, my, in other case, never even given a chance to really say anything. You know, we could express our views, you know, very strongly to everyone else, but, you know, Trump didn't want to hear them. Yeah. And um, you mentioned the ouster of Yovanovitch. And uh, right now, uh, as we speak, there are investigations going on, criminal federal investigations in Southern District of New York, Eastern District of New York, surrounding her ouster, the smear campaign, among other things, you know, had to do with particularly Rudy Giuliani in, in Ukraine and do you know anything about 
those investigations that we might that the public might not have heard yet? Have you been asked to participate in any of these investigations or asked to testify? No, I have not. And I mean, you know, I obviously myself, you know, watching things unfolding with Rudy Giuliani and the two Ukrainian-American businessmen, uh, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, I was also myself trying to figure out who are they, what are they doing, what do they want? I mean, I assumed, and actually just as in fact just seemed to be the case, that they were pursuing their own business interests, along with Rudy Giuliani, that they had contracts for some businesses, they had investments they wanted to push through. And our ambassador and people around in the embassy were getting in their way in some regards, because the um, ambassador and the embassy in Kiev were trying to promote uh, good governance programs, anti-corruption programs, transparency. And, you know, they were getting in the crosshairs of corrupt business interests in Ukraine that these other, you know, guys were trying to connect with. So she was clearly in the way. Mm-hmm. And they orchestrated her maneuver, removal, in a maneuver. <laughs> uh, you know, basically, um, there is a video on YouTube that Lev Parnas handed over. He's just, you know, today being, or in the last few days, rather, been in the press you know, about the, the case that you're referring to and uh, illegal campaign contributions, investigations into, you know, how she ended up being ousted from her position. And they put up a, um, a, a video, they recorded it themselves, of meeting with Trump in the Trump Hotel in uh, Trump International in Washington, D.C., at a dinner that was set up for donors like themselves. And they basically record themselves telling Trump that the ambassador in Ukraine is bad news. Holdover, you know, from previous administrations going around apparently telling everyone she's going to be impeached, refusing to put up his picture in the embassy. He doesn't ask if this is true. He just assumes it is because these are people from his peer circles. And he immediately Mm. says, take her out, get rid of her. And then later we hear him in the transcript of the phone call telling President Zelensky, a foreign leader of a foreign country, that she's going to go through some things. I mean, that is completely unprecedented for an American president. He's supposed to be defending Americans from foreign powers, irrespective of whether they're friendly or not, standing up for them. I mean, he is our representative abroad. I mean, imagine how chilling to have your own president say something so harsh and threatening about you to a foreign leader. She's going to go through some things. It's frightening. Yeah, that that really stuck, stuck out to me as well. And I, I consider Yovanovitch to be a... a a hero, uh, a patriot. She's the best of the best. I yeah. mean, she is one. She was one of our most re- well-respected ambassadors. You know, woman. I mean, one of the top women in the the foreign service. You know, someone who really had a stellar career. She's actually writing a memoir that's going to come out. Um, I think early next year about you know, her experiences. Are just her incredibly storied career, and she's an immigrant. You know, like myself, like uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, and you know many others who serve in the government. Immigrants who wanted to serve their country. We were interested in public service not in this self-service that we kind of saw around um, around us. And there were so many other incidents, I've described these in the book. I mean, a lot of persecution of women diplomats uh, from the Foreign Service. You know, countries who decided that they didn't want the person who was going to be appointed from the woman, you know, to be ambassador or, you know, senior official by the United States and the government that were uh, going to take on lobbyists to get rid of them. And it worked because here are two guys, and Rudy Giuliani, who got rid of uh, one of our best Foreign Service officers. Mm-hmm. you know, for their own purposes. Right. Yeah. And that and that second part of it is is kind of where it hits home, particularly when you're talking about these criminal investigations. Hopefully we'll see something and some movement on that. Finally, before before uh, we get out of here, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, first of all, your recollection of January 6th is amazing. I, I really highly recommend if you haven't already that everybody pick this book up and, and read it. But Back to that sort of discussion that that's sort of gone throughout the book, U.S., U.K., Russia. 
and this coup, this attempt to overthrow the government, which is which is linked to the, you know, the election interference and the Ukraine call. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's all just sort of one giant conspiracy, one giant scheme to hold on to power, what you call a self coup. Talk a little bit about because we're still in it. Right. Uh, as as you had mentioned earlier, we're, it's still happening. Uh, how do we yep. how do we survive this part of our history? Well, we have to stand up and tell the truth and stand up for the truth. You know, George Orwell said in a time of universal deceit, you know, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And it's bizarre that, you know, telling the truth should be a revolutionary act. I mean, George Orwell, famous for 1984, you know, for the perversion of the democracy, who would have thought that that would be the United States? That was not what he had in mind. I mean, he was worried about Britain, actually, in that kind of, you know, post-world period and, you know, some of the trends that he saw there. And also, you know, very cognizant of what was going on in the Soviet Union, the very early origins of uh, the Cold War. But, he, you know, he, he worried about totalitarianism and about authoritarianism coming from the left and the right. And, you know, that's kind of, you know, what we're seeing right now. I mean, we have members of Congress who have taken an oath to the Constitution to serve their constituents, serve the country, basically more focused on the power that they can derive from one man and, you know, failing to stand up for democracy in the country. I mean, you know, even people are even saying that democracy is associated with one party, the Democratic Party. And democracy has become a kind of a negative word. Mm. And people are talking down democracy. They're refusing to um, hear any criticism of President Trump and everyone's getting labelled, anybody who criticises him. He himself labels people. I had a bizarre you know, statement issued by the president about me as well. He called me a deep state stiff with a nice accent, which is you know, slightly random. But anyway, that was uh, that was. Oh, you got the nice accent compliment. The nice accent bit, yes. Mm -hmm. But the whole point of this is that you know everyone is defamed and denounced if they come out with anything critical. There are 330 million of us here in the United States. The preamble of the Constitution is "We, the people of the United States." The United States was founded to get rid of tyranny, to shake off you know the monarchy from Great Britain. I mean, we're what we're going to go back to creating a monarchical dynasty and you know kind of back toward tyranny by slavish focus on one person. And, you know, the fact, the fact that this is kind of perverted, you know, one of the great parties, the party of Abraham Lincoln, you know, so, I mean, what we need to get out of this, the, the way out of this is for members of Congress, you know, other political leaders and states, um, you know, around the country to, you know, basically shake themselves out of this thrall that, that, that they're in, as well as, you know, others from the media, you know, like yourself and others who uh, are engaged in a national discussion to try to stand up for the truth. This is not partisan. This is not about, you know, one particular perspective, left or right. This is about America and the future of a country that, you know, we all live in, that we all love. Mm. And, you know, for me as an immigrant and, you know, like many of my other colleagues were immigrants, we're astounded that this is happening in the United States. This is what we thought happened in other countries. So if people think, oh, can't happen here, you know, I don't see it. Well, you know, then we're all frogs boiling in that water. Yeah, I was going to say it's the slow moving nature you of know, it. You know, the infamous right? story. That's what's happening here. Yeah. When you've come in from the outside, you know, maybe you've jumped in the water and it's pretty hot. You're like, well, hang on, hang on to the frogs. You know, there's something really happening here. The, the temperature's up. And, you know, we're trying to get across here, myself and many other people are speaking out. Look, we're in real peril. This isn't over. This is maybe just a preface to the next steps here. And the only people who can change it is us getting out there, you know, fighting for voting rights, you know, keeping, you know, our electoral systems, you know, speaking up in the name of democracy and speaking up on behalf of the United States. Yeah. And, and we will continue to do that. I'm glad you're on the team that's continuing to do that. And I'm really, really glad that, that you wrote this book. It was wonderful to read. I recommend everybody pick it up. It's called There's Nothing For You Here, 
And I really appreciate your time today. Honestly, I'm truly honored to talk to you. And I thank you for your service. Likewise, Alison. Really great to be with you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's AG for the Beans. And I'd like to thank Bolin Branch for sponsoring the podcast. Today, we're building the perfect bed, the perfect sleep system from the ground up. Uh, we got the mattress worked out. We got the the cooling thing worked out. And now I want to talk about the sheets because these are the best sheets I've ever used. They're Bolin Branch. And they know that high quality sleep doesn't stop at the mattress, right? And after investing in a comfortable new mattress, like I said, I realized I, I just put as much thought and care into my sheets. I'd be sleeping on uh, night after night. And Bowen Branch makes these ultra soft organic sheets. They get softer with each wash. They're transparently sourced. They're produced in safe and fair conditions. They partner with family owned businesses that align with the same values and standards. And I love these sheets so much. They're, like I said, buttery soft. They have a magnificent drape and a silken texture. I love it. The cloud weight super soft sateen weave gets softer, like I said, as time goes on instead of crunchier like some sheets do. And there's no middleman between you and Bolin Branch, so you get luxury quality for the fairest price. They stand behind their products and honor a 30-night worry-free guarantee if you're unsatisfied. So to experience an entirely new standard of comfort, visit BolandBranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets with promo code DAILYBEANS, all one word at checkout. That's Bolin Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com and use promo code DAILYBEANS. And today's show is also brought to you by Hunter Douglas. Everyone wants to live well. Everyone wants to be at ease in comfort and style in your home. And your lighting has a lot to do with that. So does the temperature in your house. And Hunter Douglas can help you maintain all of it with their innovative window shade designs with gorgeous fabrics and these control systems that are so advanced they can be scheduled to automatically adjust to the optimal position throughout the day, depending on where the sun is. Uh, Maybe it's the way the shades diffuse harsh sunlight to cast a beautiful glow across the room or the ability to enjoy the view outside the window while protecting your privacy inside. They can't see in, but you can see out. It's possibly the the superior insulation they provide, keeping you warmer in winter, cooler in the summer, lowering your your utility bills, less stress on the planet and the grid. Or it's simply that Goldilocks moment when you walk into a room and everything about it looks and feels just right. Hunter Douglas's PowerView technology allows your shades to be set automatically to reposition for the right balance of light, privacy, and insulation, morning, noon, and night. So check out all the custom window blinds, shades, shutters, and draperies on their website. I know you'll love how Hunter Douglas window treatments transform the light in your home. It elevates everyday living, and it defines the mood of your unique and beautiful space. So live beautifully with Hunter Douglas. Enjoy greater convenience, enhanced style, and increased comfort in your home throughout the day. Visit HunterDouglas.com dailybeans today to take advantage of the Season of Style Rebate Savings event. That's HunterDouglas.com slash DailyBeans for limited time savings. Offer expires December 6, 2021. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news. It's on the way. Ah, good news. Middle of the week, good news. I'm excited about this. It's so good. I just love hearing everyone's stories. Yeah. I love hearing everyone's good news. And uh, the pet games, the... The hallelujahs, the Louis Gomerts, all of it. It all makes me very happy. <laughs> and if you have anything you want to send in, you can do it at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. We are in desperate need of your good news stories because of all the weird shit that's happening. So please send those in. I, I personally, like shit kids say, that's really fun. It makes me laugh. Uh, and you can pay your pod pet tax. If you don't have a pet, you can always send your kids. If you don't have, if you don't have that, you can, what people have been doing, Dana, which is really cool is they've been sharing pictures of adoptable pets near them. I love it. Such a good idea. I know they're so adorable. 
And um, let's see. Uh, oh, by the way, patrons helping patrons. We're setting this back up for the holidays, uh, Dana. Basically, you go to dailybeanspod.com. You scroll down on the bottom of the main page. There says patrons helping patrons. And for 36 bucks, you can buy a year-long premium subscription for somebody who can't swing it right now. And that is also, if you want to have one of those uh, premium subscriptions donated to you, that's where you sign up on the waiting list there to get those subscriptions. So uh, that gives you access to these episodes early, ad-free, everything on the Patreon page, our meet and greet information, um, which is coming up soon, right? I, I'm going to be in New York. Uh, no, excuse me, uh, D.C., the 22nd and the 23rd, Boston, the 24th and 25th, New York, the 26th and 27th. I can't uh, believe I'm missing all these shenanigans. I'm, I'm going to be actually working during that entire week, but in a in a beautiful place. But I'm actually going to be doing... The the, uh, the job I had before the pandemic started. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Uh, so I, I look forward to uh, to seeing you all there. And again, that's the kind of stuff that patrons get, the information on where our little happy hour meet and greet cocktail hours are when I'm there. All right. Uh, let's let's get into the good news. I'm, I'm going to do the first two because they're kind of short. You got it. First one's from Dr. Liv, no pronouns given. Thank you for sharing my fucking kitty story. My family was ecstatic to hear it on quote unquote the radio. Good, good news. I passed my Viva with minor corrections and I'm now a doctor. Nice. Not that kind of doctor. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, I did my studies in Glasgow, Scotland, and quite often took the train to Milngavy. Have fun with that pronunciation. I could not have done it without the train conductor's recitation. Mm. What do you think it's, what do you think it is? Dana? I think it's, uh, Mingavi? Mingavi. I don't right. think the L's, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, All right. I like it. Well, congratulations, doctor. And make sure to use that honorific whenever you can, especially when you're talking to Republicans. Next up from Dory, pronouns she and her. I just wanted to let you know, Mixie is still out here listening with supersonic sound catchers. (laughs) Yes, she is. (laughs) Oh my God, look at those ears. Those are amazing. Oh, wonderful. What a cute kitty. All right. This is from Ben, pronouns he and him. Now, I saw this post in the Behind the Beans page, so I'm super excited to tell this good news here. Ben says, I've been for astronaut selection. Uh, I've applied to be an astronaut with the European Space Agency. I'm luckily enough to have actually been in the small proportion, and I'm going to fuck this up, but it says about 1,500 to 22. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Help me okay. out with this. It's about 1,500 or so out of 22,000, almost 23,000. Oh, thank you very much, which yeah, is yeah, about yeah. 6.6% is what they choose. My God. I do question my intelligence sometimes, um, inviting to face-to-face selection in Hamburg, Germany. I almost thought I said Hamburg wrong. <laughs> As a Jew, I would have been like, you know what, fucking deal with it. Okay. It was, a tough, <laughs> it was a tough day. I honestly don't think I've done enough to get any further uh, to the third out of six stages. However, even assuming I've got no further I'm absolutely over the moon to have at least briefly been considered a viable astronaut candidate by an actual space agency. Ben's face in this picture. As pet tax, I include Ruby, the Shih Tzu, and Yorkshire Terrier, who desperately wanted to come with me to support her dada. But unfortunately, there wasn't enough room in the bag. (laughs) Ben, your face just lit up is so sweet. Standing in front of your astronaut assessment floor and then the babies. That's amazing. Indeed. Sorry, that was hard for me to get through that submission for some reason. This is so <sighs> cute. It's it's typed in it's typed in European. 
So, it, is, it is definitely typed in the way Ben speaks. Right. I've which, been as for astronaut be. selection. So you would yes. be like, I've been chosen for astronaut selection. I've been to astronaut selection. I've been for astronaut selection, and which is proper English. This is, we don't speak that here. No. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, it's exactly correct. This is, this is proper English. But we, we don't speak. Which is why I can't read it because I went to school in New Mexico. Okay. <laughs> Listen, everyone from Albuquerque, at least back when they were in, if they were around my age, you know that the public school system, I don't know how it's doing now, but it could have used to tune up then. So hopefully it's been helped. <laughs> All right. Now, well, congratulations. And I like how he's like, even if I don't go any further, I'm over the moon. Ha <laughs> over the moon. Very cute. Next up, Mike B, pronouns he and him. I've never been comfortable calling the 45th president the former guy. It seems too charitable. Really, was he ever someone you'd consider calling a guy? I'd love to never refer to him at all, but that's not really practical. So instead of the former guy, I suggest we say the big liar. And it's capitalized. It's accurate, simple, catchy, and your listeners will know exactly who you mean. I also like that it serves as a continuous link to arguably the worst thing he's done since becoming president. Yeah, the big lie is bad. That's true. That is a good one. I'm going to, I'll try and work it in. I'm not going to lie. All right. This is from Dina, pronoun she and her. I want to celebrate some good news from the past few days, especially in light of Indigenous Peoples Day on Monday. President Biden reversed, I wanted to talk about this yesterday. I'm so glad that Dina's bringing this up. President Biden reversed the terrible Trump decision to slash the Bears Ears National Monument and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. This was a big deal. The Bears Ears was created in 2017 by President Barack Obama after a coalition of five tribal nations, the Navajo Nation, the Ute Tribe, the Hopi Tribe, the Pueblo of Zuni, and the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe got together in 2015 and asked President Obama to designate their homeland a national monument, and he did. The Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, established in 1996 by President Bill Clinton. This past spring, Interior Secretary Deb Holland visited both monuments and recommended that they be restored. Now, on Thursday, President Biden said he would do it, and on Friday, he signed the order. The Grand Staircase is back to its 2017 boundaries after the big liar cut it in half. See how I did that? Cut it in half and (laughs) opened it up. Nice. Opened it up again to oil and gas and coal developments. President Biden kept 11,000 acres that TFG protected after he cut the rest of Bears Ears by 85%. Now, of course, the Utah GOP is throwing a fit again. It was illegal to reverse an Antiquities Act decision in the first place. And the reason to do it were simply to pay back the ass-kissing Orrin Hatch and the rest of the Utah Republicans bestowed on TFG, who this person's obviously referring to as guy, during the election and to open the areas up again to oil, gas, and coal mining. So we again have protections for Bears Ears, Grand Staircase, and the Northeast Canyons and Seamount's Marine National Monument of the New England Coast, which was established in 2016 by Obama as the first Marine National Monument. A huge step in the right direction. I love that this person knew all of this. Dina, thank you so much for the submission. Um, Pet tax. Uh, We got pod tech stars are my granddaughter Lucy, the dog whisperer, giving her big sister Olive a hug and discussing the new plan for Lucy's Halloween costume to incorporate the new forehead scar after Lucy went head first into an Ikea bookshelf. She's hanging out with her aunt's large puppies and kissing her baby Ozzy. He's about four times bigger now. Oh, that look at that. And Harry so the Harry Potter, Potter scar. Perfect. 
so oh, look cute. at those sweet babies. Yeah, Dina, thank you. Uh, I, I I covered this uh, in depth on is today Wednesday. Today is we are recording Tuesday. Yes, this is airing Wednesday. Ah, yes, of course. I, I went in depth on this uh, on cleanup on all forty five, which comes out today. Oh, good. <laughs> Let's do it. It's almost word for word, Dina, how you wrote it. So if you're looking for a writing job, let me know. Nice. Well, thanks for covering it, Ag. Yeah, they. He wanted to let. He wanted to strip mine Jupiter Hollow. Basically, I've, if I can quote big business and and the Bears Ears and Escalante, the Grand Staircase, three point two million acres, Dana. That's the size of Connecticut. That's amazing. And um and Biden just bam signed a thing, restored it all, and Doug Holland gave an amazing speech on it. So yeah, if you want to, a little more information, deep dive on that. Dina, I uh, recommend you listen to Clean Up on L45 today. Andrew and I went over it. Incredibly important. And the, the you know, the stuff off Cape Cod, too. Of course, the, the fishing industry was mad, but, you know, too bad. So sad. Marine wildlife refugee. Uh, next up, Terry, pronouns she and her. I'm writing in the hopes that the beans community might be able to help. I've been listening to Muller, she wrote, and then the Daily Beans for years now. And I wanted to say thanks for putting yourselves, your ideas and your efforts into the world. They've all had so much value. One thing that's become clear to me over the years of listening is that more people who care about government probably need to be involved in it. And I don't just mean elected officials and I don't just mean the military. And I'm guessing I'm not the only person who has come to this conclusion. I've gone on usajobs.gov and looked for roles in my city, Pittsburgh, and role background human resources. But it's hard to navigate for a non-government person. There's all kinds of clearances and GS levels and open to the public and not items to consider. It's really different from looking for a role in the private sector. Yes, Terry, it is. Here's what I'm wondering about help. I bet I'm not the only person who's begun to feel a call to service this way. Would you be willing to interview on air someone who might be able to help us non-government folks better understand what's involved in moving into that world, seeking a job, networking, how it works? Normally, if I wanted to learn more about an industry or company, I consult my LinkedIn connections and reach out to somebody Maybe schedule a virtual coffee and learn about what they do. But I have nobody in my network who worked in government, and I don't even know where to find them. Thanks again for your work and helping me grow my world wider. Now, it'll probably wreck me to even hear you talk about a pod pet tax, but it's here because they were both awesome cats. Madison, Maddie Brown, and Lomas, who's a white cat, were our sweet girls who passed in 2019 and February 2020. At ages 19 and 16, respectively. Wow. Maddie, a Maine Coon, was so brilliant, she learned how to walk on a leash and pee in the toilet. Lomas, an American short hair, was never having any of that bullshit and instead saved my husband's life when he was in a deep depression. So, no. heroes. Oh, so Terry. sweet. <gasps> that Maine Coon looks just like my old Maine Coon named The yeah. Face. He's been it's beautiful. Gone for a while. Beautiful. Oh. Both of these cats are gorgeous. And all the hair that could make a kitten on that pillow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the typical cat bed for a main thing for sure. Terry, uh, I could put together a podcast that tells people how to. I was just about to. AG, I'm not shitting you. I was about to say, AG, would you like me to interview you on one of the podcasts? Yeah, I can tell. I can um, give information on how to set up a wonderful federal resume. I can talk about how to navigate USA jobs. I can talk about how long it takes and what you might need, what positions you'd be available for. Let me, um, if Terry, if you could email me, uh, ag at mullersherote.com, remind me of this submission and and ask about potentially putting together uh, some sort of, a, I don't know, Zoom call uh, where I could talk to some of my other friends in the government 
who are, you know, I was a hiring manager. I must have hired Dana over my tenure, like 300 people for U.S. government jobs. But, you know, I, I would that would be something that I would love to to do. Maybe I can even dedicate an episode to it or something. Well, I'll figure something out. But email me. Absolutely. Put the bug in my ear. Put the email in my inbox, which is, you know, helps me keep track of things. That's one of my PTSD tricks. And uh, I'll see what I can do for you. I think that's a great idea. I'm glad we got that submission. Yeah, that's yeah, it's amazing. I'm I'm reading it and I'm like, oh, I have so many things I could tell you. And that's the show. Thank you for submitting your good news. If you have anything you want to submit or questions like that or ideas, um, you know, we're open to all of them. Send them in at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. And I really hope you enjoyed the interview with Fiona Hill today. She's just such an amazing person. She's so funny and so laid back and relaxed. And I was kind of fangirling half the time. So I apologize. <laughs> I did that the first time I interviewed Mary. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, oh goodness. Yeah. But um, I really uh, appreciate her spending the time. And please, seriously, we're, we're working on this new thing called Knock the Fascists Off the Lists, which means subscribe to this podcast so we can outchart Hannity mm-hmm. and Tucker Carlson, buy Mary Trump's book, The Reckoning, buy Fiona Hill's book, There's Nothing for You Here, so we can knock these Republicans who buy their own books, by the way, to get on bestsellers list, but we want to knock them off the charts. We want to get the fascists off the lists. Yeah, because so. I guarantee that our people are not buying their own books. Mm-hmm. Jesus, that's pathetic. Yeah, and and they're just good books to have. I mean, what? A, yeah, they really are. These last four years, I've put together a hell of a bookshelf. <laughs> I really have. Right? Yeah. Mine has so. definitely changed a bit. Hey, before I go, and uh, well, I know we'll be hearing this a day late, but I know that you'll join me in this. I just want to wish Charlotte Clymer a very happy 35th birthday, my dear friend. And, and you know, I know she's beloved in this podcast as well. So I wanted to make sure that got out there. That's today. That's Tuesday, October 12th. And even though you're listening on the 13th, it was Charlotte's birthday. Yeah. So if you ever wants to head to Twitter and just give her a huge rush of belated birthday wishes. Totally. I know she would love it and and and, and send her my love as well. And yeah, happy birthday. What an amazing human. What a wonderful Indeed. woman. Just an and incredible woman. Sharp as a whip. Funny <laughs> as hell. <laughs> She's so funny. Oh my God. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks again for everyone's submission. Until tomorrow, everyone, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of your mental health and take care of the planet. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com.